0: At about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on October 29, 1956, 16 Israeli Air Force Dakota transport planes took off from their base near Tel Aviv. Flying as low as 100 feet off the ground, 500 Israeli paratroopers prepared for a dangerous mission. One of them was Dan Ziv, a 20 year old lieutenant who knew very little about the big picture, only that he was eager to make his first combat jump and hoping to do a good job on his mission. A couple hours later, the planes pulled over a place called Mitla Pass, a narrow roadway bisecting two mountain ranges in the Sinai Peninsula. The Sinai, yes, named after Mount Sinai in the Book of Exodus, the Sinai is a triangle of land between Israel and Egypt and owned by Egypt. Mitla Pass was the only navigable route across the center of the Sinai Peninsula. And Israel, as we'll see, had a very specific reason for wanting to be there. As the planes approached the pass, Israeli tanks, jeeps, and other armored vehicles began pouring out of their own desert bases and making a dash for Sinai. High above Mitla Pass, the Israeli Air Force planes opened their doors and paratroopers began leaping out into a sky growing darker by the minute. Dan Ziv may not have fully understood what he was getting into, but as he jumped out into the desert sky, he knew one thing for sure. He and Israel were now at war. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Auto Know. I would say to young people and that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Here's the whole point of today's episode don't make the mistake of thinking that the biggest players in the Arab Israeli conflict. Are the arabs and the israelis because they aren't this conflict isn't just about what the israelis do to the palestinians or what the arabs do to the israelis it's very often about an even bigger picture like today the cold war between the west and the soviet union and the perennial competition over which middle eastern country is going to be on which side if you've ever wondered why the small country of israel is such a big player on the world stage the answer begins with the sinai campaign of 1956 Israel launched a war, everyone was either confused or just pretending to be, America was pissed but had trouble articulating just exactly why, Egypt was surprised and humiliated, and after about a 100 hours of fighting, Israel emerged victorious and put the lid on war for the next 11 years. The Sinai Campaign of 1956 was a whole lot of people standing around saying, wait, what just happened? The events of 1956 are known in Israel as the Sinai Campaign, campaign as in war, and for the rest of the world as the Suez Crisis. I use them interchangeably, but they both mean the same thing. I think the easiest way to understand the Suez Crisis of 1956 is as a confluence of three levels of conflict, local, regional, and international. It gets confusing because they're all tangled up together, each one influencing the other. At the local level, you had Egypt and Israel in a state of conflict. Egypt supported terrorism against Israel, and Israel retaliated against Egypt. In response, Egypt under its leader, Colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser, placed an economic blockade on Israel. There are other reasons, but we'll get into them. So that's the local level. And then there's the regional level. The Suez Canal is a waterway running through Egypt that links the Mediterranean and Red Seas, which itself leads out into the Indian Ocean. It's one of the most strategically important waterways for global commerce, especially oil. Even though it's within Egyptian territory, Britain's military controlled the canal to ensure its neutrality, but really to ensure that Britain's supply of oil doesn't get cut off. Nasser wants the British gone. He's trying to be the big man of the Middle East and is pushing a brand of anti-colonialism, pro-Arab nationalism to achieve that. Two major components of that brand are attacking Israel and winning, and pushing the British imperialists out. And then there is the international level of the conflict, the Cold War. In the mid-1950s, both the United States and the Soviet Union were heavily courting Egypt. They each wanted to use Egypt as a doorway into the Arab world, and to keep the other guy out. So we've got armed conflict and economic blockade with Israel, tension with Britain over the Suez Canal, Nazar wanting to be the top dog in the Middle East, and the United States and the Soviet Union jockeying for influence in Egypt. The Suez Crisis wasn't one thing, it was several things that all came together in the fall of 1956. Israel, Britain, and France thought their problems could be solved by war. In the end, it was a disaster for pretty much everyone. But to reinforce my point that the Arab-Israeli conflict often isn't just about the Arabs or the Israelis, the two winners to emerge from the war were, oddly enough, both the Egyptians... And the Israelis. Last episode, I talked about the Fedayeen, Arab terrorists who attacked Israel from Jordan and Egypt during the 1950s. By the mid-1950s, Egypt was supporting them and in response, Israel began retaliating against Egyptian military bases in and around the Gaza Strip, which was Egyptian territory, and next to Sinai. With each attack and Israeli retaliation, tensions burned ever hotter, and a low-level but steady conflict erupted. Gamal Abdel Nasser, Egypt's leader who came to power in a coup, was militating against Israel, promising to revenge the Arabs' humiliation from the 1948 war by defeating Israel once and for all. But in the early years of his rule, there were also tentative attempts at making peace between the two countries. As with any such effort in the Middle East, you can spin the failure is either Israel's fault or the Egyptians. Some have argued that Egypt saw in Israel a potential ally against the imperialistic West. If only Israel would support Egypt in pushing out the British, the two countries could find common ground. Arguments have been made that Israel repeatedly ignored or rejected outreach from Nasser and his allies in an attempt to engage in talks. In this, it could be argued, Israel was choosing the side of the Western colonialists, and this is what led to the Suez Crisis of 56. Now, I'm not a huge fan of this argument. Maybe Israel did miss possibilities at peace talks, but from Israel's perspective, there wasn't much to talk about. Nazar was trying to unite the Middle East behind his leadership, and a huge part of bringing the Arabs along was his consistent and insistent promises to destroy Israel. That and the Fedayeen terrorist attacks, and you could forgive Israel for a certain amount of skepticism that Nazar was really interested in a long-term partnership. The Fedayeen attacks led to a harsh Israeli response in February of 1955, Operation Black Arrow, which I talked about last episode. Ariel Sharon led a raid on an Egyptian military base in Gaza that killed 38 Egyptian soldiers, a humiliating blow to Nazar's promises of strength against Israel. In response to that attack and the atmosphere of conflict, Nazir blocked Israeli shipping at Israel's southern port city of Eilat. By the way, if you're listening to this on your phone or a computer or anywhere you can pull up a map, I encourage you to do so. Look for the Sinai Peninsula. Look at where the Suez Canal is, where Eilat is. It will give you a sense of the strategic picture here and how the geography contributed to this conflict. So now we've got military conflict in and around Gaza, and also the Egyptians placing an economic blockade on Israel from the south, but then Nasser did something else that for Israel was completely unacceptable. He went to the Soviet Union and asked to buy as much advanced weaponry as he could afford. And he could afford a lot. At Aswan, Egypt, on the Nile River, special ceremonies marked the start of work on the Aswan High Dam, whose construction has been delayed by lack of funds and international complications. Host for the occasion is President Gamal Abdel Nasser, his guest of honor... Morocco. While all this was going on, Nasser was trying to build a dam on the Nile River in southern Egypt. Not for any military purpose, but for electricity and economic development. It was expensive, and along the way, both Britain and the United States agreed to front him money. It's not because those two countries had any particular interest in the Nile River. It's because by giving Nasser money, they were getting influence with the Middle East's most populous and powerful Arab country. But Dwight Eisenhower and Anthony Eden, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, they didn't appreciate the Egyptians looking to the Soviet Union. And to express their displeasure, they told Nasser that they weren't going to help pay for his damn project anymore. So Nazar hatched a plan. He would push the British out of the Suez Canal, take it over, charge everyone money to sail through, and use that money to pay for the dam. Meanwhile, he would take the side of the communists, since they were offering him all kinds of support as well as the latest weapons to beef up his military. Between tossing out the Western imperialists, owning the Suez, and having the most sophisticated weapons in the Middle East, well, he really will be the man on top. It's a slick plan but it was one too many steps for Britain, and especially for Israel. At the end of the day, Israel could have tolerated the occasional terrorist attack, but they couldn't allow an economic blockade, and one that would get worse once Egypt controlled the Suez Canal. And they really, really couldn't allow Egypt to have better weapons than they did, not when Nazar was promising to use them against Israel. The question in 1955 and 1956 was how to deal with it. Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion and the Israeli army's chief of staff, Moshe Dayan, they understood that a war was coming. It was inevitable that Egypt would soon enough use its new high-tech weapons against Israel. The Israeli government decided that if war was going to happen, it had to happen when Israel's military was still probably strong enough to defeat Nasser. But Israel can't launch a war against Egypt by itself. Not when Egypt was backed by the Soviet Union and the United States. Despite pulling its money... Dwight Eisenhower still wanted to use Egypt as the United States' buddy in the Middle East, so there was no way he'd support an Israeli attack. So Israel had a conundrum. How do we provoke a war with Egypt now, win it, and not get in trouble with the rest of the world? The answer was to find friends in high places who would back you up. Arriving in the Egyptian capital from Alexandria, where he proclaimed his seizure of the Suez Canal Company, President Mazar finds Cairo's population in a veritable nationalistic frenzy, an acclaiming multitude which escorts him like a hero to the presidential palace, where he delivers another fiery speech in answer to opposition to his provocative action. In 1956, neither Britain nor France were particularly pleased with Egypt. Nasser was backing a resistance movement in Algeria, which was a French colony, which pissed off the French. Meanwhile, the British had made a deal with Egypt to pull out of the Suez Canal, provided that Egypt preserved the canal's neutrality. That is, that he continued to allow every country in the world free passage between the Mediterranean and Red Seas. But in July of 1956, Nasser seized the canal and nationalized it. Now he had the power to cut off the flow of shipping, especially oil, from whoever he wished. Neither Britain nor France were willing to let this go, but they didn't quite know what to do next. Israel had a very clever plan, and together the three of them hatched a secret plot, specifically kept from the Americans, to take back the canal and deal Nazar a blow. In a nutshell, the plan was this. Israel would attack Egypt through the Sinai Peninsula, starting a war. Britain and France would pretend to be really surprised by this, and would demand a ceasefire between the two countries. Israel would accept the ceasefire, but Egypt would not. Since Israel had invaded Egyptian territory, Nazar would insist on fighting back. So Britain and France would send their own militaries to get in the middle of the two armies to force them apart. And that midpoint just happened to be, maybe you guessed it, the Suez Canal. At the end of the day, Britain and France would own the Suez Canal, and Israel would own the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip. For Israel, this would end Egypt's blockade, end the Fedayeen terrorist attacks, and smash Egypt's military to the point where getting more weapons from the Soviet Union wouldn't be such a game-changer. Which brings us full circle to the beginning of this episode, and our paratrooper, Dan Ziv, flying above the Sinai Peninsula. Because the launching point for the Israeli attack... The event that would trigger the British and the French to call a ceasefire was this one spot in the Sinai Peninsula very close to the Suez Canal. The mountain road called Mitla Pass. At last, without warning, Israel strikes. General Moshe Dayan, one-eyed commander-in-chief, orders the tanks into action. Within hours, the leading Israeli columns are driving towards the canal. Britain and France react at once with an ultimatum. Stop the fighting or we march in. Israel accepts if Egypt will, but Egypt flatly refuses. The world waits tensely to see whether the British... When Dan Ziv and his fellow Israeli soldiers reached Mitla Pass, either dropping from the sky or arriving by land, they weren't supposed to do anything except sit there. There was no military objective. It was just supposed to trigger the British and the French to demand a ceasefire. But the Israeli commander was the ultra-aggressive Ariel Sharon, for whom, just sit there are the worst words in the Hebrew language. As Dan Ziv put it, we are a long way from Israel and a short way from the Suez Canal. Ariel Sharon was unhappy about being exposed so deep inside Egypt, vulnerable to a sudden counterattack. Sharon wanted to seize the entire pass, blocking it off at the far end to prevent the Egyptian military from sneaking up on the Israelis. But Moshe Dayan, the leader of the IDF and the guy running this war, said no, don't do anything. Sharon asked if he could at least send a small recon team to check out the other end of the pass, make sure everything was nice and quiet, and this he got permission to do. So he sent over a recon team, a heavily armed one. Now, to be fair to Ariel Sharon, it wasn't an entirely unreasonable request. After all, this whole thing was secret, right? Nothing wrong with checking out the area a little bit, making sure the Egyptians didn't know what's up. The problem was that the Egyptians by then did know what's up and they were waiting for the Israelis at the end of Mitla Pass. And as soon as the Israeli recon team got out in the open, the Egyptians attacked. Now there was a huge battle raging where there wasn't supposed to be, and the Israeli forces were in trouble. Dan Ziv was with Ariel Sharon's second-in-command, Aharon Davidi, who asked for a volunteer to go see what was happening and report back. Davidi's driver, a young soldier named Yehuda Kendror, volunteered. Dan Ziv remembered that Ken Dror's face turned white, but he jumped into his jeep and drove off. Minutes later, he was ambushed by Egyptian forces who shot him from the side of the road. He drove his jeep into a ditch and lay there hiding until nightfall, when he crawled severely wounded hundreds of meters back to the Israeli position. Although he made it to a hospital back in Israel, he died of his wounds three months later. Aharon Davidi asked for another volunteer, and Dan Ziv stepped forward. Mitla Pass was just one battle in a conflict that quickly erupted into all-out war. Israel invaded on October 29th. As planned, Britain and France demanded a ceasefire, which Israel accepted but Egypt refused, Using the agreed-on pretext that they needed to get between the two and safeguard the Suez Canal, England and France began bombing Egypt on October 31st, preparing the way for an invasion of the Canal Zone. Nasser responded by sinking 40 ships in the narrow waterway, which blocked it for the next several months. The United Nations, United States, and the Soviet Union all demanded that Israel, Britain, and France cease fire, but the three of them weren't interested. On November 5th, British and French paratroopers landed at Port Said, the city at the northern tip of the canal, and battled the Egyptians house to house and bridge to bridge in a desperate fight to take control over the canal. Nazar was forced to pull his army in from the Sinai Peninsula, pretty much leaving the whole place to the Israelis. By then, Israel had already captured the Gaza Strip and the northern part of the Sinai, and the IDF was making a beeline to the southern city of Sharm el-Sheikh. If they could take that city... would break Egypt's blockade of the port of Eilat. The Soviet Union was outraged, not wanting to see their Egyptian buddies get beat by the West. Nikita Khrushchev, the communist leader, threatened to send Soviet troops to the canal to fight the British and the French. If that happened, the United States, as part of NATO, would have to come to their defense against the Soviets. Khrushchev, at this point, began bragging about the size and quantity of his nuclear weapons. President Eisenhower started panicking that World War III was at hand, this time with nukes. So the United States began playing hardball with Britain and France. Eisenhower refused to allow the International Monetary Fund to grant Britain a huge loan that its economy needed. Then he threatened to impose oil sanctions on Britain. Saudi Arabia announced an oil embargo against Britain, and the United States went along with it. Politically, this whole thing was falling apart after just a few days. Militarily, The British, French, and especially the Israelis, were doing great. Out in Mitla Pass, still on October 29th, the first day of the invasion, Dan Ziv and a few hand-picked soldiers somehow got through miles of Egyptian positions, with hundreds of enemy troops firing at them from close distance. Reaching the Israeli position on the other side, Dan Ziv loaded wounded soldiers into his vehicle, pulled a U-turn, and through bullets, smoke, and mortar shells drove right back to the Israeli line. He reported to his commanders that the only hope for Israel was to fight its way out against the Egyptians. "'So we fought the battle,' Ziv recalled. "'A terrible fight, all night, killing the enemy with knives and entrenching tools, hole to hole. Awful casualties. The worst ever.' so many men fighting with such bravery not just us the egyptians too 260 dead on their side 46 on ours horrible dan made it out alive for his heroism in rescuing wounded soldiers in the heat of combat he was awarded israel's highest military honor the medal of valor along with three other soldiers during the sinai campaign in the end israel secured the mitla pass After about a hundred hours of combat, Israel seized the entire Sinai Peninsula, including the Gaza Strip, which tripled the size of its country in about four days. It broke the Egyptian blockade of Eilat and wrecked all the military bases used by the Fedayeen terrorists. International pressure finally convinced Britain and France to ceasefire on November 6th, even though they were still in the midst of fighting and hadn't fully seized the canal yet now the pressure was on Israel to retreat back to its original border with Egypt that had been established in 1949. In other words, to fully retreat out of the Sinai Peninsula. To the outrage of all involved, especially the United States, David Ben-Gurion dug in his heels and absolutely refused. There was not a chance, he said, that he's going to let things go back to the way they were, with the Fedayeen and the blockades and the superior weapons coming in from the Soviets israel has serious security needs he insisted there's no way we're giving back everything we just won without egypt having to lift a finger eisenhower threatened to pull all u.s support from israel to allow the united nations to sanction the jewish state and maybe even to kick israel out of the un altogether ben-gurion still wouldn't budge what finally worked was the creation of the united nations emergency force in which several countries agreed to send troops to the sinai peninsula to send everyone back to their corners keep the israelis and egyptians away from each other and monitor the peninsula to make sure that egypt didn't start moving military forces there even though the egyptians didn't promise anything to the israelis israel accepted the deal it took several months but by march of 1957 israel had given everything back But not before destroying as much infrastructure as they could to ensure that egypt couldn't use it to attack them again on their way out the door israel also stole six egyptian locomotives to use back home you could write a book about the impact of the suez crisis and of course many people have in the end britain and france were the big losers they fought a war that they didn't really win. They didn't quite capture the Suez Canal, so when the ceasefire was declared, the canal remained in Egypt's hands. Still is today. The war was such a failure, and the fact that Prime Minister Anthony Eden of Britain kept it secret from both the British public and Parliament tanked his political career. He was out as Prime Minister a month later. Britain's power and prestige as a major colonial power suffered so significantly from the Suez Crisis that many historians now see it as the final curtain for the imperial British Empire. The United States, France, most of the rest of the West, all looked bad in the eyes of the Arab world for backing Israel. As far as influence was concerned, the West was out and the Soviets were in. That wasn't true forever, but it was a significant blow to Western interests in the Middle East. Khrushchev was so convinced that his nuclear bluff worked that he would try to repeat the same trick again in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Ultimately, the big winners were Egypt and Israel. Israel suffered 172 killed, Egypt more than a thousand, but Egypt got to keep the canal. Nazar spun the military defeat to portray himself as the hero who pushed back the Western colonialists and the Zionists, and used the opportunity to seize ever more repressive power over his people. He came out as the most influential leader of the Arab world. And Israel, for its part, achieved all its objectives. The Fedayeen terrorist attacks were no more, a lot was open for business, In its lightning-fast campaign and holding firm against demands for a withdrawal, Israel had shown the world that they must take Israeli security seriously. Most important of all, Israel averted the war that they had set out to circumvent from the beginning. The Sinai campaign bought Israel another 11 years without war. And as it turns out, the Egyptians weren't the only ones piling up sophisticated military weapons. Throughout the 1950s, Israel had been working on its own top-secret project that still today begs the question, does Israel... Or does Israel not have nuclear weapons? Today's music was Yehoram Gaon and Bikedem. Thanks for listening, everyone. L'hitraot. See you later.